everyone, and welcome back to the Age of Enfrightenment. We are very happy to bring a new episode to you, and I, I think that we have a really interesting subject matter on this, our 14th episode of the Age of Enfrightenment. Except it's not the 14th episode, it's the 13th. Now, if I was more of a skeptical man, I might have stuck with that, just like all of the assholes who are building their skyscrapers missing one floor because they're terrified of the number 13. So that's what we're talking about today. Really weird, bizarre things that people have believed for a very long time, and what the fuck is up with that? Yeah, like Jesus. What's the deal with Jesus? Like Jeebus. And gravity. You can't prove that. (laughs) So thinking about this idea of... Ain't you going to introduce us? Uh, yes. Well, that's what I was about to do, man. So thinking about this idea, I want to ask both of my co-hosts, one after the other, things that you are superstitious about. So first, I'd like to introduce Theo. Hi. Hi, guys. You're doing a great job, Nick. We're all real proud of you. <laughs> Theo, what are you superstitious about in your okay, everyday so, life? Uh, years and years ago, I used to work at a Philly pretzel factory. So a store that sells pretzels, if you're not familiar with it. And one day a customer came in and paid for something. I don't even remember what it was, but they paid in change and they gave me a gold quarter. And I never seen that before. And it's actually like a regular quarter, but it's gold. So I held on to that. And because I'm a fucking nerd, the first (laughs) thought that went through my mind is clearly this is a quarter from some other universe where quarters are made (laughs) out of gold. I thought you were going to say, like, a leprechaun quarter or, or something. It's like, the John, it's like the John Wick Society. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, like, I did some research into it. It's some kind of, like, special edition thing, and it's worth some, like, really specific number, like $1.35 or something. But anyways, I've held on to that quarter, and anytime I need to make a big decision, I will use that quarter. I'll flip that coin, um, you huh. know, if I have to decide between one thing or another. And I am convinced if I go against what that quarter tells me, something bad will happen. So you're not. So you're actually using it to make like a crossroads kind of decision, exactly. not just not just simple things like oh I'm going to eat a hoagie tonight or I'm going to eat like Thai food. It's, no, it's absolutely. Like this is like things. big deal stuff. Oh, and how has that worked out so far? Uh, so far, it seems okay. I haven't had any like major mishaps. Plus my house. <laughs> I gambled away my home in Atlantic See, City. See, it came but... up tails in giving my father the EpiPen shot. So. <laughs> Rest in peace. <laughs> R.I.P. Big Ed. So um, that's kind of interesting. So how long how long have you had that? I guess you worked there over ten years ago at this no, point. No, not not that long. Um, geez, I've been. I want to say six years ago. Since okay, six years since I've worked there. But, yeah, I've held on to it since. And, um, like, I, I, I realized that there's no factual basis behind this. And I know I, I, on a very intellectual level, if I do something against what the coin comes up, nothing's going to happen. But I still won't do that. I will do what the <laughs> coin tells me to. So that's I think that's kind of superstition in a nutshell is right. some weird random thing that doesn't make sense to anybody besides the person who does it. Right. It's like a relic where you just attach meaning to it and that's what gives it its power. Right. 
Yeah. Do you find yourself being afraid of the consequences or is it just a positive thing? Like, oh, this is like my lucky quarter or is it, or is there any bit of anxiety? Like, well, if I was to do the opposite, you know, it does, does the quarter itself hold any sort of malevolence on any degree? I don't think it's malevolence because I think to, to me, the, the, what the decision that the coin makes is the best decision. So if I were to go against it, I absolutely have the power to go against it. But that decision would be the wrong decision. So it would be on me. So I guess right. the coin is mostly a positive thing. Oh, cool. All right. You're now, one face burn away from being two-faced. <laughs> <laughs> you are one chemical <laughs> attack away from yeah. being Harvey Dent. Also, I don't know why a coin from an alternate universe would be magic, but... I mean, it certainly wouldn't not be. It would at least be charged with some kind of uh, supernatural... It would be really upsetting if it was just a coin that yeah, happened to be here. True. Yeah. So uh, having gone over that, I'd like to introduce my other co-host, Dave. Hey. <laughs> Dave, why don't you tell us about uh, some superstitious things that you believe or do? All right. So there are definitely some basics. I uh, throw sh- uh, sh- shalt. salt over <laughs> oh, my shalt. Uh, shoulder constantly upon spilling it. I've done that since I was a kid. I've always knocked on wood to avoid jinxes. Um, One of the weird ones, (laughs) which I was telling Nick and I was debating not bringing up on this podcast because a little, it's uh, a a little bit of obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, I uh, love music of all kinds. Um, I made a career of it at one point. Uh, I love the band Radiohead. I will not listen to Radiohead. Fucking hipster. I haven't for years uh, because even though I fancy myself rational, I have a suspicion or a superstition, I would say, that every time I listen to Radiohead, something terrible happens. Why Radiohead? I, I don't know. <laughs> I think that, um, like, uh, a couple of times, like, this first popped up when I was dealing with a bunch of anxiety issues, and I think the the first few times where stuff went really wrong, my mind trying to rationalize everything jumped to Radiohead and realizing that I had listened to it that day. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it just kind of stuck. And I'm sure now that when I do hear it, uh, I am, like, looking for something bad to happen but like it's pretty serious like i was telling nick like i i very subtly kind of like banned the employees at the company from playing radiohead (laughs) (laughs) with a complete uh abuse of power and i just love the i just love the idea of everyone there being like man dave really fucking hates radiohead but no i don't i I, I love radiohead i really wish i could listen to them again yeah it's so is it like Radiohead across the board or is it just like a certain album or um <laughs> just to play it safe i guess we're, all of it, we're right? getting yeah i mean <laughs> n- none none of it but i mean if we're talking in particular uh in rainbows and okay computer okay. you know like the two best radiohead <laughs> albums uh the best radiohead album is kid a and i will fucking fight somebody over that 
that's okay. I, I won't touch that argument because <laughs> it could be unlucky. Okay, um, follow-up I've, question. I've thrown out... Uh, okay, yeah, give me your follow-up question. And by the way, before we delve too deep, um, not that that's a lingering thing from obsessive-compulsive disorder. So it's very much a, a, a hangover from a chemical imbalance, but go did, ahead, fire did, away. Dude, I just talked about my fucking magic coin from an alternate universe, so clearly yeah, I Yeah, but that's not, 100% real. Yeah. So it's different. <laughs> so yeah, I'm we, not we can't prove here. that that's not true. <laughs> um, if you were, like, in a car and, like, Creep came on, because every radio station plays Creep, like, once an hour... Would you immediately have to turn it off? I have a set of rules. Um, it, it, God damn it. Okay, so <laughs> this is going to get crazier. Um, the rule with them is nullified if it's completely beyond my control. Mm-hmm. And I qualify that as, like, making a very, very awkward social situation. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I just try to not listen when it comes on. Right. But, I mean, I think that gets to the heart of what superstition is, though, because all superstitions tend to have weird, like, back exits that you can get out of, where it's like, oh, if a black cat crosses your path, you're unlucky unless you do this. Or, like, if, uh, you know, you break a mirror, you can do that. There's always these little, like, counter remedies, and I think it's just our way of saying... If I avoid this, I'll be fine. But then you still need that life jacket if the thing happens. And, yeah. it's, and there's also something to the fact that, like you said, awkward social situations that you don't want to make, that in and of itself is a bad thing. So it's like yeah. you're almost becoming truly unlucky by just the fact that you're trying to avoid it. So it's like a self-fulfilling kind yeah. of situation. So, so here's a thing that I know I haven't told you guys because I barely say it out loud to anybody but there's a specific song that I haven't listened to, and I'm going to say at this point, 10 years. And it's a great song. I think it's a beautiful song, but the I had song. to kind of realize it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I listen to the Macarena like once a day to like just get me going in the morning. It's but how it it's works a out. Specific song that I think is just like wonderful and beautiful. And I decided I was never going to listen to this song again hmm. until everything was perfect and okay in my life where i had this moment where like i am just completely happy and fulfilled then i'm going to listen to this song again Hmm. and i have made it a point not to hear this song in the past decade and that song is kid a by radiohead oh shit really yeah that's so weird yeah and i mean i i never knew you had this radiohead thing and all the time that we've known each other yeah i keep it pretty uh quiet because like again i I know (laughs) not that there should be any shame uh, Mm -hmm. with mental illness, but Mm -hmm. like it's the same way how like if you had syphilis, but could kind of keep it (laughs) quiet, (laughs) you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't continuously bring up your syphilis. (laughs) Well, it's a good thing. No one listens to this podcast other than our friend Andy and like a smattering of other people. Yeah. And they already know about my syphilis. (laughs) Well, I want to know what the fuck is Tom York putting in his music? Well, yeah, clearly we need to get all of Radiohead (laughs) on the podcast and ask them why they're ruining both of your lives. (laughs) Explain your sorcery. You fucking demons. Oh, that's crazy. I, I love both those stories because I don't I don't think I 
I knew, I definitely didn't know about either of those. So that's kind of funny. And, and Theo, I think yours is interesting because it's so positive. It's an example of one of those superstitions that's mm-hmm. like kind of a, a pretty thought. So what's the harm in it? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, it's really interesting. I know for me, um, I was saying this to Dave earlier. I'm so skeptical on an almost equally unhealthy level <laughs> to the way that some people are superstitious, superstitious, where I don't think I allow myself to just have some fancied thoughts that are a little strange. But there are certain things that have definitely caught me in just a loop of behaviors. So when I was growing up, my house was right in front of uh, train tracks. So we would have big like freight trains come by that in the middle of the night sometimes would last for like 10 minutes as they went by. And all of the kids on my block and I, we had this, this thing where if the train was going by, you had to lift your feet in the air. So if we're all sitting around on my back, my parents' back porch, um, we'd all lift our legs. And the rule was, and I don't, know where this comes from if it's a regional thing or if anyone else in other neighborhoods even do this but we would lift our legs and if you did lift your legs you would gain a year of your life but if you didn't um you would lose a year so it kind of had this weird rule set where it was a give and take so you might be walking across the yard and have all the other kids are like, Oh, you didn't lift your legs. Cause you're, you know, walking across the yard and then you might be able to say, well, I'll just make up for it the next couple of times because there's sort of this balance of lifting and not lifting. And so to this day, I, in, you know, nearly 30 years old, I'll go to my parents' house and lift my legs up during a train. <laughs> and, and if people ask me like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, look, I'm not saying it works, but if it does, I'm going to live to be like 750 years old. Cause I've always done this my entire life. And it just seems like a, Hey, why not? Kind of thing that I just, it's like a knee jerk reaction. Now I know this is supposed to be a judgment free zone, but I think <laughs> that Ed and I can both agree. That's fucking weird. Man. <laughs> That's, it's, I wish you hadn't told me that because now I'm not going to be able to judge you for it. <laughs> but that's, I think that's like my only thing that I, that I can think of that I do. Like, I don't really knock on wood. I don't really do a lot of the other big stuff. It's just that one really specific thing to my street. Yeah. And I think I do it more as like a sense of pride than a sense of something <laughs> bad is going to happen. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with it. We we didn't have religion in my household. We had weird superstitions instead. <laughs> um, like there were plenty of times all the way into my 20s where my mom would be like, whatever happened to that shirt that like you you got and wore once or twice? <clears throat> I would be like, yeah, no, it was unlucky. <laughs> and without a, a blink, she would be like, oh, God, yeah, then throw it out. Yeah, get it out of my like, house. <laughs> <laughs> It is kind of interesting. It's like there's this void in us that needs to fill that with something. And because you weren't a religious family, well, you had to, you couldn't just be walking around making 100% rational decisions all the time. It's almost unnatural to do that, I guess. Oh, yeah. No, I just needed somebody to stuff my void. <laughs> <laughs> so getting a little bit into sort of the details of this. Like I said, this is our 13th episode, which is what kind of sparked the idea. And I was amazed at how much stuff, and I know, Dave, you found a lot too, there is on the history of 13 and why it's a big deal. And part of it, I think, is like sort of a primal natural reaction. Uh, Number one, it's an odd number, which uh, from doing my research, odd numbers in general seem to make people really uneasy. 
I think just the fact that it's, there's no symmetry that, um, you can't, uh, it's also a prime number. You can't divide it out, um, evenly. So I, I think there's something about that with our understanding of mathematics bothers us, but then there's also things that kind of go back really far. So we know in the Christian tradition that there are 12 apostles. We also know that in the Norse tradition, there's a story about how much like Judas Iscariot, who was sort of the 13th guest at the Last Supper, Loki actually similarly joined a dinner party that the Aesir was was at, and there was already 12 gods present, and when Loki showed up, it just kind of set everything amok. And as we know, he, he ended up betraying them and sort of uh, sparking the events of Ragnarok, which clearly shows where religions start to converge oh, yeah. with those two examples. We talk about the fucking Nordic <clears throat> gods way too much without having actually done Yeah, we got to get one on the podcast. <laughs> Let's see I if think we can pe- get Baldur on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's become, it's going to be one of those things where eventually we realize this entire podcast is just about H.P. Lovecraft and, <laughs> yeah. and the Nordic gods without ever directly talking about them. <laughs> but I thought that was interesting. And then there was also other things, too, that I didn't even really dawn on me with 13. I mean, we have 12 months in the year. Uh, a dozen is a term that we use for lots of different things. Um, with, there are 12 zodiac signs. Uh, the day is split into two 12-hour halves. I have 12 and, toes. Yeah, Theo <laughs> has 12 toes. Not 12 fingers, though. He only has eight. So I think we, <laughs> end, we know where those fingers went. <laughs> but, um, but, but even back to like the ancient Sumerians, they were sort of the first ones to do measurements in 12s. Um, you know, we have 12 inches and a foot there. It's clearly a, a number that we just like for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. There's even I think there's 12 notes in all of Western music. Right. Yeah. Like I think if that's you right. count the sharps and the flats. Yeah. So it's kind of bizarre that we kind of discovered ways to fit things into this neat little box. So it's almost like 13 has become the redheaded stepchild that we're just like, nah, fuck you. How how dare you be? even though something has to exist there between 12 and 14. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of crazy to think about that, but there were a few other kind of things that I thought were interesting um, because we think of 13, I think, in a very contemporary sense. We think of Friday the 13th movies. But even back to uh, 1780 BC, the Code of Hammurabi, a lot of people say that that's what sparked a lot of the fear because there were only 12 laws. Now, a lot of scholars have put forth the the reminder that they also weren't numbered it wasn't like the 10 commandments it was just the code of Hammurabi but even the fact that you know it's it's one of those conspiracy theory things where you can keep looking back and be like there it is again it's that whole 12 versus 13 thing seems to be this like ancient struggle of of good and evil in our minds now Friday the 13th I know that like what spurred that into the public eye was um Let's see here. It was a book called Friday the 13th by Thomas W. Lawson at the very beginning of the 1900s because uh, it seemed like 13 was universally a frowned upon number. And I know that Friday was a typically frowned upon day because uh, it was supposed to be the day that Jesus was killed. Uh, so apparently just the addition of Friday plus 13 uh, started to just signify a bad day overall. Right. I, I, I think that's funny, too, that there wasn't... I always assumed that you'd be able to do the research and be like, oh, yeah, on Friday the 13th on this day, there was a really bad, like, battle or something. And 
I've actually did, I did find something that was kind of interesting about Friday the 13th because even though nobody cared about it until like 1907, conspiracy series with uh, hindsight of 2020 went through the records and, you know, we all know that the Knights Templar, much like the Freemasons, are sort of this spooky group of people that we like to think ruled the world with an iron fist clandestinely. Yeah, the Templars are awesome. They are awesome, but there's also a lot of truth to them that kind of shows that in reality, in a lot of ways, they were wealthy knights who Mm -hmm. had political um, backing and had political power throughout the region that they were in. And there is a factual date of Friday the 13th in 1307, uh, which is interesting because the publication date for the book that, that Dave mentioned, Friday the 13th, I have is 1907. So 600 years before that, on Friday the 13th, there was a group of Knights Templar who were arrested by King Philip IV. Um, Scholars have put forth that it was merely regular political bullshit. They were becoming powerful. He was broke. He said, hey, the Templar have a lot of money. Go take their money and arrest them. You know, I think I remember this. Weren't they, like, arrested for heresy or blasphemy or something like that? Yeah, weren't they supposed to be worshipping the head of Baphomet? Yeah, so that that was the interesting part. Now, it sparked all kinds of, again, that conspiracy theorist hindsight thing where people nowadays who want to figure out why is Friday the 13th important – can go back, find a day, Friday the 13th, nice Templar, okay, that's great conspiracy theory, you know, juice, yeah. and churn it all together with demonic uh, worshipping and, and religious, and, and they said, and this is where the story kind of falls apart for conspiracy theorists, people have said that, like, the Pope um, could, or, or accused them of heresy, and then arrested them. It actually wasn't. It was the king of France, and there's no proof that the pope was involved at all. So there are scholars, uh, skeptics, who put forth, no, he wanted their money. Yeah. He needed to fund his armies, and he said, these are the guys, these guys are an easy target. And back in those days, and we talked about the story in the witchcraft episode, yeah. a good way to get somebody arrested real quickly without questions is to say that they're committing heresy. Or yeah, they, oh, they yeah. said, no, they said Jesus was... sucks and stuff. Let's get him. <laughs> yeah, that was real low hanging and fruit back then. <laughs> yeah. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting part of the 13th uh, sort of mystery that that has continued to this day. My God, if it was still so easy to just throw around heresy, like <laughs> everyone I don't like would have been killed by now. Just some guy like like butts in front of you in line at Wawa and you just start screaming heresy in his face and pointing. I'm going to start a Kickstarter to have Jimmy Fallon arrested for heresy because I just plain don't like that guy. I know there was also, um, aside from 13, there was definitely some other really cool numerology things that I found. And Dave, I know you found some stuff too. Do you have anything on like, uh, I know the Chinese and Japanese have, uh, they have a certain hang up about the number four. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a much more reasonable explanation for this one. And it's basically that the word four is very, very similar to the word death, both in sound, uh, and appearance like the letter, but it's basically their 13, uh, over there, like Many buildings go from three to five, uh, just like many of ours go from 12 to 14. Interesting. 
Uh, but yeah, no, it's, and like I said, the, the explanation is way less cool than the Knights Templar, but it's just like, yeah, it kind of looks like death, <laughs> but just, and I mean, we can say that, but they could very well say the same thing about R13. Right. Uh, there's probably been a, a mythos built up around it over a millennia. And I think it's a particularly Asian language kind of thing because they use kanji and they use characters that are so illustrative like, I don't really see us running into that issue where, like, oh, this letter looks like a scorpion, so we <laughs> should stay away from it. <laughs> but they can run into those things because it's so illustrative, their characters. And, and in fact, the Japanese also have a very high distaste for nine because nine, or I think it's ku or ku, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, um, sounds like the word for torture or suffering. Really? So those are two of their numbers between one and ten that they're just like, we don't want to fuck with it. <laughs> and then there's also numbers like six and eight, which are lucky to the Chinese. So, again, there's even numbers, something just about human beings. We just are much more comfortable with an even number. You want to talk about ladders for a second? I would love to, actually. <laughs> Be- oh, let's do. <laughs> All right, so your basic kind of ladder typically has between 12 and 15 rungs. That's a high ladder, actually. I don't know if that's a basic ladder. Um, Okay, so, you know, I don't have much on this, but I just found it really interesting uh, because, you know, we've all heard the the superstition of not walking underneath the ladder. And this actually goes all the way back to ancient Egypt, where a ladder leaning against the wall created the symbol of the Holy Trinity— uh, and walking through that trinity would be considered an act of desecration. It would be like, I don't know, Paul vaulting with a crucifix. Like <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out an analog here. <laughs> that would be, um, <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> um, so that's where it seemed to get going. Uh, then when you jump over to Christianity, there's apparently a famous uh, scene described where a ladder was leaned up against a crucifix, presumably to nail Christ to it. So that became a, uh, a bit of a friend upon ordeal. Yeah. And then in and England, it was the Trinity also because that again, oh, yeah. that the Christians adopted that's that concept of the Holy Trinity from, adopted from, stall, whatever yeah. <laughs> uh, adapted. And then in England going all the way up to the 1600s, when a criminal was being taken to the gallows in order to get up on the gallows, they had to walk under a ladder. Um, so that became typically a sign that you were about to be hung to death. Uh, and it just kind of stuck. And now, you know, kids are still told to not walk under right. a ladder. When I was a little kid, though, I was like, that's clearly just so that, like, things don't fall on you. Right. But it, it was interesting to see that it had such a, a rich history. Yeah, I and I think it's one of those examples of us using way more complex terms to define things that just make good common sense. Oh. Like don't walk under a ladder cuz there might be someone on the ladder, you might make them fall, you might knock over what's on the top of the ladder. It's like no, it's such wanna, a practical thing. <laughs> you want to hear the best version of that, uh opening an umbrella inside. Yeah. Is con- is uh something that you're not supposed to do. It's unlucky. That actually stemmed from uh, Victorian era England. Basically, that was the first time that umbrellas had metal spokes in them. However, uh, because it was new technology, the umbrellas were very big and the spokes were very, very hard and the mechanics of it just weren't quite there. And what would sometimes happen when you open an umbrella 
all of those spokes were turned into projectiles um, <laughs> oh. and cause a whole lot of damage. So, you know, you obviously didn't want to open inside because you could break a bunch of stuff and impale people. Right. <laughs> and they, they literally turned it into an unlucky thing to open an umbrella inside because people were getting hurt by umbrellas exploding. Oh, right. I had, I had no idea that there was actually a practical reasoning behind that. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. And I'm, it makes sense when you think about it. Because for me, I always just thought of like, well, don't open inside because it's not going to rain inside. It's just like oh. a common sense thing. Like, <laughs> that, why, why would you? That's need, your reasoning. Why would you need it? I've never seen it rain in here. <laughs> <laughs> not in all of my 29 years have I seen that. But yeah, it's kind of funny that it kind of goes back to how shitty all of the things we make are when we first make them. It's like, you know, people are still super afraid sometimes, uh, especially in a state like New Jersey where we're not legally allowed to pump our own gas, even though I do it all the time. Um, it's bad luck to pump your own gas in New Jersey. Well, and there's sort of like... Yeah, Christy will get you. There's sort of this like... (laughs) Chris Christy will eat you. He will eat you and then sit on the beach and like play with your entrails alone because he closed the beach off to everyone else. What a terrible man. (laughs) But there's still this kind of persisting idea, this like fear that it's there's a very high possibility that you might explode at a gas pump. But it's because there was a time when you could, because the technology wasn't good, the safety wasn't great, and that's why we weren't allowed to pump pump our own gas for a long time. And that time still exists now. It's just <laughs> less frequent. It's so much less frequent. Like, you know, people will freak out. Like, I don't know, I've certainly done this where I forget to turn the engine off. Yeah. And you've got somebody in the car who's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. And it's like, we're fine. Or, it's, like, you okay. do it and you get back in your car and you realize that accidentally your hands were on fire the whole time. <laughs> But they were on fire before I started pumping my gas, so well, I yeah. guess that's on me. Well, like, you should have put your hands out before you <laughs> pumped the gas. Yeah, so there are those things that are sort of very practical. Um, another thing, I've, I have stuff on different cultures, but I think maybe something that we could get into is sort of the concept of sort of symbols of bad luck or harbingers of bad luck. Um, and I, I think both of you guys have, have some cool stuff that's related to that. So, yeah, no, I find the, the Harbingers of Doom really interesting. I actually found some neat ones, so we can kind of speed run through some of them. My favorite one, though, is the Blackbird of Chernobyl. So if you're not familiar with Chernobyl, in 1986, there was a massive nuclear meltdown. They had a, a nuclear power plant, and basically one of the reactors went critical uh, there was a huge explosion that killed a lot of people, and the and entire. And this is this is in Russia, Chernobyl, yeah. This Russia. is in Russia, uh, Minnesota, Russia. <laughs> um, <laughs> and before that, I'm sure it was just a lovely place to live because it was in Russia. So yeah. I'm sure it was very happy town. It was Russia in the 80s. Everything was great, <laughs> but um, the entire city had to be evacuated. Uh, a lot of people died both during the actual disaster from intense radiation because the, the, the standard human body can endure about 500 rads when that reactor went critical even after the initial explosion it was pumping out 20,000 rads um, that is not rad <laughs> I wasn't going to uh. do that I thought about it but I didn't uh, well, clearly I have a lot of growing up to do. Only because a lot of people die. <laughs> <laughs> Before that happened, a, cu- a couple of weeks leading up to the incident, both plant workers and the people who lived in the city started reporting seeing a vaguely humanoid, huge black crow. 
with a 20-foot wingspan and red eyes. You may be right now uh, making some crosslings to the Mothman. Mothman? That's Uh, exactly what I was just thinking was the Mothman. Yeah, but it was vaguely similar to that, uh, and people that would see it would begin having terrifying nightmares and getting horrifying phone calls from a voice that they didn't know. And they so, didn't even have phones, because this is communist Russia. So that <laughs> made it all the weirder that they were getting phone calls. So a phone would just show up at their door. <laughs> um, it's me, the Russian Mothman. But, uh, <laughs> it is I, Comrade Crowboy. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, uh, people were getting so freaked out by this, uh, with the dreams and the phone calls and these huge 20-foot bird sightings, that they actually started reporting it to the plant managers, which obviously was brushed off then when the actual disaster happened the firefighters who were all doomed because they didn't realize how strong the radiation was so they just went in to fight a fire not properly equipped so they pretty much all died but they claimed to have seen a huge unrealistically big bird flying through the noxious clouds uh, of the factory which were filled with radiation uh, they later came to find out, but it was believed that they were seeing the Blackbird of Chernobyl. And after the incident, the Blackbird was never seen again. Uh, so it, you know, so just like the Mothman in Point Pleasant, Virginia. Yeah, exactly. It did its business and it moved on <laughs> to uh, Virginia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know that that presents a couple of interesting theories. You know, the first of which being that this was an actual harbinger of doom. Uh, somewhat unlikely, but, you know. Somewhat. Just <laughs> Arkham's Razor, you have to go with, or you have to list out all the possible options. Uh, the second thing was, who knows, preceding the disaster, if anything was leaking into the air or the ground soil that was causing some kind of hallucinations. Um, that with... Uh, basic suggestion could cause any number of sightings or the possibly the most interesting uh, of the three is maybe people who are overall more sensitive sense that something very bad was coming I know we're getting into kind of like ESP psychic territory but who knows uh, this was a monumental disaster uh, the likes of which no one had seen before Maybe there was just something in the air causing yeah. people to see this. And then the, the sort of wild card in all of that is that they're all spotting the same common archetype of a big black bird and describing the same way. And like you said, the suggestion plays a role. One person hears another talking about, you know, everybody's sort of high on the same radioactive leakage. Yeah. And one person says they saw a big black bird and, you know, it doesn't take much for everybody else to be like, yeah, man, I saw it too. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like I said, this was Russia in the mid eighties. Like who knows how tight their regulations were, uh, how much exposure the plant workers, uh, were exposed to. You know, there could be any number of things, but I just found it really cool because, you know, we all know the Mothman story or we don't, but the three of us do. (laughs) And uh, like there's there's something really cool about the Blackbird of Chernobyl. It's just so fucking creepy. And sort of tying it back to how superstitions grow and and spread. Do you know if people in that area of Russia like dread the Blackbird? Like, has it become 
because to be sort of a true ongoing harbinger, is it something where it's like, hey, if you see that, it means something bad is going to happen? That I don't know. Um, but like I said, there, there's apparently no sightings of it since then. Right. I mean, it makes sense because crows are supposed to be a bad omen. Right, which is pretty, I thought was interesting to find. And I guess maybe it's just the fact that they are often seen flocking together and that that can be unsettling to see them around like plus they're you know they're carrion birds they they eat dead things exactly so i mean it's interesting how pervasive that's been across continents that crows in general are a symbol of coming death so that's the black bird of chernobyl Uh, a couple other interesting ones are uh the sire wreath which is from welsh folklore and it's supposed to roam the countryside, and if you hear it shrieking, which apparently it, it does often, it's supposed to signify imminent death uh, of either you or somebody close to you. Uh, there's also a nautical tie-in, uh, as sometimes it's seen screaming basically at the ocean, uh, which is supposed to forewarn of a disaster at sea. There's the way you say screaming at the ocean, I'm just picturing a guy standing <laughs> hey, in front of the ocean hey. like, I fucking dare you, ocean. <laughs> Fuck you, ocean. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, one I really dug, and I, I think, Ed, you're going to like this too. From Celtic folklore, there's the white stag. The white stag are, like, stags are supposed to be the messengers of the underworld. And the white stag, as just described, is it's obviously albino it's completely white and has red eyes and it's supposed to again be a harbinger of doom uh predicting the death of you or somebody close or just an overall disaster and when i was reading that i I kind of uh loved that concept but you can see the tie over to the stories about splitfoot bill and old scratch being a black stag of the forest Mm -hmm. um it seems like the white stag Celtic mythology kind of bled over into Christianity uh, and American folklore. And and there's also that issue of color, too. That idea of, like, very specifically, it's this kind. That seems to weave its way into most superstitions. Probably the biggest one that most people know about would be a black cat. And the idea that black cats are unlucky, which really, and I feel like there's a lot of this episode that ties in to other things that we talked about. And in particularly, the black cat is sort of joint at the hip with witchcraft. And there's actually an interesting story of kind of exactly where that comes from, at least what most historians will claim is sort of what kicked it off so popularly. And that was um, in the 1560s in Lincolnshire, England. There was a father and a son who were riding down a trail in their wagon or on their horses, and a black cat crossed their path. And whether it was because the cat looked at them funny or they were just dicks, (laughs) they, (laughs) like a lot of stupid humans do, they sort of provoked it and they threw a stone And one of the stones that they threw connected and the cat sort of limped. It meowed and hissed and then sort of limped away. The two men later told people that they saw the cat sort of limping off to a house, which was owned by an old crone that everyone in the village thought was a witch. That's how you know this is an old-timey story when (laughs) people had to, like, share the fact that they threw a rock at a cat because there's literally nothing else to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, there's no shame attached to that act. So, yeah, so I was throwing rocks at a cat the other day, like you do. 
so it limps off to this house, and of course, this is an older woman who lives alone. So naturally, she's a witch. <laughs> so of course, she's a <laughs> she's not just like a beet farmer or or something else. As the story goes, the next day after seeing the cat sort of take refuge in this woman's house, they claim to see the old woman and knew her by face because she was known in the in the community, and they claim to see her limping where she hadn't before. So the story goes that they started to spread the word that she transformed herself into a cat and that they injured her the night before in her cat form. And that, along with just the, the winds that took, kind of, took off the stories of witchcraft in general, kind of spread this idea yeah. of, of black cats being <clears throat> witch familiars. Yeah, the, the, it was further popularized. I, Ireland itself didn't actually have a lot of... Uh, a lot of witch hunts, at least not nearly as bad as other places in Europe. But one of their most famous cases involved a family of witches who had a cat named Satan that was supposed to be an all-black cat that was able to transform into different shapes and was basically whispering arcane knowledge into the witch's ears. Like Uh, this. Hey, I'm your cat Satan. I'm a whisper in your ear. Yeah, probably something like that. <laughs> and I think it's interesting. There's there's probably also at least some small degree of uh, religious sort of warfare happening as far as symbolism goes, because the ancient Egyptians revered cats above really most other animals, if not all. Uh, it was illegal to kill a cat. I'm pretty sure you could be killed yourself if you even injured one. And the goddess Bast, who was took the form of a cat and often portrayed as specifically a black cat, was a very central deity. So there's also theory, theories that even well before the Middle Ages, early Christians were very much uh, in favor of demonizing cats because it's a good way to sort of root out the prevalent old religion within a certain area. It's definitely interesting the the place that cats have had in human society, whether it be good or bad, cats have always had this otherworldly aura to them. You know, the Egyptians revered them, like you said. Uh, some people think that cats are like symbols of evil, but I guess it's just because cats are never really tame. They kind of just like flit in and out of human right. lives. They're, they have this sort of, I don't want to say unnatural, but definitely otherworldly quality to them. Right, and so, and it's interesting to see what people have assigned to them because you know we talked about the Chinese and Japanese and their superstitions, mm-hmm. and go into any sort of Chinese or Japanese restaurant and you'll probably see a luck cat um, mm-hmm. somewhere near the door or near the counter, which are those little cats that have sort of grins and they have a paw up and they, they look very cute. Yeah. That's not just decoration. Those are supposed to help your business be prosperous. So yeah. it almost seems like there's a split down the globe that happens at some point where sort of the further east you go the more revered cats are and the further west Mm -hmm. you go the more they become sort of shifty tricksters that you can't trust yeah Yeah. when when we started doing research for this episode and we're talking about you know omens and superstition uh the first place my mind went was pirates just because so much of that is like kind of like encapsulated in pirate culture. And I started doing a lot of research into that. One of the things that I found, and not just for pirates, but for, you know, sailors, especially sailors of like the ancient world, cats were incredibly good luck. And they would all, you would always want to have a cat on the voyage with you. And what I came to find is that like a lot of 
superstition for pirates and sailors has some kind of basis in reality that it's sort of like the umbrella thing. Like right. there was a good reason for it at first, but it took on this sort of like mythical quality. So they would want cats on the boats with them because there would be bilge rats. You know, there would be rats on the ship that they just you they would just be uh, part of life. But you bring a cat on board with you, the cat's going to kill the rats for you. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's like someone did that and said, wow, I'm a freaking genius. We should have a cat on every ship. Give it, mm. uh, you know, a few decades. And next thing you know, it's like, oh, it's bad luck to sail without a cat because right. disaster yeah. will strike. And some of the other ones they have, like, you know, it's bad luck to have a woman on board with you. And that because they don't make... know how to do anything. Right. Exactly. Because <laughs> they're, they're women and their brains are smaller and they can't do hard work and they shouldn't be allowed to vote. I agree. I agree with everything you're saying, Nick. Uh, no, but, but I mean, it just makes sense if you're going to be on a voyage for months at the ocean with just a bunch of horny, drunk men. You're probably <laughs> best for a woman not to be in that environment. Yeah, anyway. just complicating the situation. Right, exactly. So, so that became bad luck. Um, a shark following your ship is an omen of death, which, I mean, <laughs> if you just kind of think about that, that's not even like a luck thing that's it's just not even know. superstition that's just well, a bad of, thing to happen of course it is yeah. like if a tiger followed your car all the way to work you would be bummed out that day <laughs> exactly um so when when you go go a little bit farther back in history some of the sailing superstition gets a little bit more vague like one that i found that was really cool is that ancient greek and roman sailors while they were away from port you know on their ships they wouldn't cut their hair or trim their nails and the methodology behind that was if you did that, that was considered in some weird roundabout way an offering to um, Prosperine, which is the Roman version of Persephone, mm-hmm. um, uh, Hades' wife who was kept captive in the underworld. And if you're giving an offering to her, that means that this is an offering that's being taken away from Neptune, the god of the ocean. So you would be better off appeasing Neptune than Persephone because if Neptune found out, he would get pissed and sink your ship. Hmm. What did you have to do to appease Neptune? <laughs> oh, that's actually you would throw coins in the water before you took off. Huh. All right. Yeah. So let's get some scuba gear I'm and so let's amazed go get you had, all those coins. I'm so impressed that you had an answer for that. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> it's funny that uh, my ears perked up when you said the thing about not clipping your nails. That's mm-hmm. such a weird, specific thing, but it's one that I've seen pop up across a few different cultures in my research. Mm-hmm. Like, the Chinese have a superstition that if you clip your nails at night, ghosts! It's just like, clip your <laughs> nails, and you get ghosts. That's what happens. <laughs> so it's just such a weird thing. Like, I can't for the life of me think of what the practical explanation of that is. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I mean, there, there's a lot of things like that. I, I have a friend who's first-generation... Chinese immigrant and when I was at his house uh, his house in South Jersey he showed me his bedroom and he was like my parents like his is this Jason yeah this is Jason his entire closet is a mirror and he was like this is really problematic because (laughs) my parents won't let me sleep in front of a mirror because I guess that's a bad luck thing in China Mm. he was like so I have to put my bed in a place that's not in front of the mirror. Like, because the placement of his bed was all wrong. It was in the weirdest spot. Like, it made no sense logistically. Right. But feng shui-wise, it was probably... Yeah, right it's not it even feng shui. It was just avoiding death. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, it's as if he had a giant, 
like 60 foot crater in his bedroom it's like well obviously i have to put my bed over here yeah. i can't put it near the crater i mean he you know D- jason is very americanized so he was like this is just an annoyance for me right. um whereas parents were like absolutely not actually speaking of mirrors uh th- there's some you know everyone knows the myth about breaking a mirror causes seven years of bad luck mirrors go back a uh, long 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 way uh, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Romans all had theories about the supernatural based around mirrors, and that is that they reflected your soul. The idea of breaking that uh, means that a piece of your soul is broken. Now, the Romans believed uh, quite accurately, as time showed, that it takes the, the body and the soul seven years to regenerate, which is great because like that is actually true as far as the body goes our cells regenerate every seven years um, right it's like you're a different person by your cell structure seven yeah, years later. yeah it, which is crazy because you know theirs was based in the supernatural uh in a supernatural belief system and ours is based on science but it's basically saying the same thing so breaking a mirror because you know seven years of bad luck seems like such a weirdly specific number that's what i always thought yeah yeah but it it, you know it was well if you break it like you're gonna have seven years of a shitty broken soul but don't worry because eventually it'll just kind of sort itself out (laughs) but yeah i thought that was interesting yeah and the fact that that they intuitively sort of just knew like searched in like the way they felt health-wise, and we're like, yeah, seven years seems like the amount yeah. of time it takes to heal from something, and they were pretty spot-on about it. <clears throat> I always thought that that had more to do with the Christian tradition, so I think it's interesting to find out that it comes more from the Romans, because seven, uh, much like 666, is a very significant, or 40, is a very significant biblical number that you see constantly. Seven is sort of a symbol of God. It has more of a perfect connotation to it. 777 is sort of like more seen as God's number, whereas 666 is, is the beast. Yeah. Um, so I, I assumed that it had something to do with that, but even seven has kind of proven itself to be one of those pervasive numbers that we just instinct, instinctually think is lucky. Like when you pull three sevens at a casino or, or things like that, it's just something that we're like, yeah, that feels right. Seven's a, seven's a good number. And and it's it's it kind of has its ties clearly from the Romans and the Christians in like different cultures. So what is it about seven that just makes humans think, yeah, that's a good number. I like I like to keep that number around. I have uh, one more pirate related story, and I think you guys are actually going to dig this one. Nice. So um, anybody who hasn't been living under a rock for the past decade has seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And the what now? <laughs> uh, Explain just, them. Start to finish. It's this movie ser- series about like a boy who has to go to wizard college, <laughs> and yeah, um, I don't think you've seen them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so everybody's familiar, at least on a surface level, with the character Davy Jones, right? And that's like I always thought that that was a really kind of like odd name for a terrifying sea monster. Yeah, was sure. Davy Jones. I mean, I think Dave is a pretty tough name. <laughs> um, well, and there was a Davy Jones and the Monkees, and everybody knows what, what a heavy fucking band they were. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bad asses. Um, but anyways, Davy Jones is a play on... Um, it, it's based on Jonah, the story, the biblical story of Jonah and the whale. 
for those of you who might not be familiar, Dave, there's a Bible story about a man named Jonah Bible. who was, yeah, the Bible. Um, he was tasked with going to a city called um, Nineveh. And this is like Old Testament where like God still fucking hates everybody. Right. He's and it's like really into prick. like just smiting whole cities. <laughs> so um, he tasked this man named Jonah to go to Nineveh and to warn the people there because they were all sinful and wicked that they need to repent or he was going to strike them down. And Jonah was completely not into the idea. So he runs away and he gets on a, a merchant ship that's headed across the ocean. And when he gets on the ship, um, a, this huge storm starts raging and is just like, you know, the ship is like almost sinking. And the sailors on the ship are trying to figure out what's going on because they believe that there's a curse and something like unnatural is happening. And they finally, you know, like question Jonah about it. And they find out that he was tasked by God. And what happens is they throw him overboard and the storm stops and Jonah gets swallowed by a whale. The whale delivers him to the city. And the basis of the story, like the moral of it, is that you can't run from God when you're called. Uh, however, sailors, like ancient sailors, took that a different way. And they took it to be that Jonah was, the, was a villain of the story because he went on the ship knowing that he was cursed by God and put all the other men in harm's way. Right. So they started referring to him as the devil Jonah. And over, you know, years and just miles, that became Davy Jones right. from the just devil Jonah. Just because of horrible Holy cockney shit. accents saying like, devil Jonah, <laughs> the devil Jonah. <laughs> that's awesome. That right. is really cool. I never knew that level of that story. Now, right. I know and that's why they said that the, the, the ocean was Davy Jones's locker because that's what they did. They threw him overboard. And when you go overboard, you're in Davy Jones's locker. Right? That's really wow. cool. Now, I know you say you can't outrun God, but, like, what What if you run, like, really fast? Like, yeah, like, 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 what is he, he like had, what's his 100? Like, like what's his 100-meter dash Would he be able time? to catch, like, Aeshaan Bolt? <laughs> I, I think if you had Heelys, those sneakers that have, like, the little wheels in them, you could probably get away from God. All right. That's so true. it was mostly just a technological advance issue. Right. They just didn't have Heelys yet. Otherwise, exactly. they would have been fine. So right. that's why we don't need God anymore. All right, I think I'm starting gentlemen. to understand Christianity. <laughs> uh, no, that's really cool. Yeah, I really like that. And just in general, yeah. I think there's something there's something interesting about the fact that pirates were so superstitious that sort of uh, has a cross section with a lot of the research that I did because I looked into some of like the sort of psychological reasons because I feel like we can we can try to explain away a lot of ancient superstition as, well, they just didn't know any better, so this is what they came up with to describe it. But then it also begs the question, why do we still have so much superstition? And one of the psychological reasons um, that seemed to make a lot of sense to me was that it's, it can be very tied to anxiety and stress. Yep. And pirates were living in a world where they were... I mean, they were basically the space explorers of their day. It was extremely deadly to be a sailor. Just getting on a boat and leaving land just drastically up your chances of dying at sea. So they're living in this high-stress environment all the time. So you could see where every single possible thing that could kill them, whether it be an accident in the rigging, slipping off the deck... Uh, a storm that crushes the ship, any number of things. It's like they have to have a different superstition to ward off each one of those threats. Yeah, well, I feel like so much of superstition um, is, you know, not stepping on cracks, knocking on wood, 
are to avoid bad things from happening, I feel like so much of it is us trying to predict and avoid the unpredictable and unavoidable. <laughs> right. Things that we know, you know in our hearts we have zero control over. Yeah, exactly. Because that's really what scares people is a lack of control and, and unknown fate uh, and how you're going to die. And it seems like a lot of these superstitions are just ways that people try to assign themselves some measure of control right? Uh, over these kinds of things. It's the same thing with the Harbingers of Doom we were talking about. Bad things just happen. Uh, disasters happen. Uh, natural events can happen. And it would be great if there was some kind of an early warning alarm that people could keep an eye out for and potentially give them enough of a heads up to escape or at least get their things in order. But that's just typically not the way that it works. It's, it's a fantastic idea, but you know, you can understand why these things have become so popular and just ingrained themselves right. in society. Yeah. I mean, in the, in my findings there, there was something about in, in the nineties, there was a psychological study done <clears throat> with Israeli citizens during what was really a, a huge conflict between the Israelis um, and the Palestinians, there was a lot of shelling, a lot of death uh, happening. And one study found that people who lived in areas that were more prone to missile attacks were also practicing much more superstitious um, kinds of things. So it's one of those things where you're waking up every day being glad that you woke up because overnight you might have been destroyed by missiles and it just breeds in that group of people uh, this sense of, well, maybe the reason I'm still alive and all my neighbors are dying is because I have this talisman or because I pray this many times a day. Or, and it just starts to move itself sort of back and forth from the religious territory into the superstitious territory. And that's like a measurable thing in war-torn areas. I also saw something about South Africans and how prevalent... Um, super, just lots of local superstitions have been throughout different times of crisis and war in their history. And I'm sure America is no different. Um, I'm sure if you look into like civil war records and stuff, there's probably a lot of people that had their lucky rabbit's foot or oh, know, yeah. things like no, that. I know tons. that was a big thing in the South was the rabbit's foot, the idea of having this talisman that would protect you from harm. We're getting slightly towards the end. Nick, do you want to talk about the 13 Club at all? Bring it all the way back around to the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. So so thinking about everything that we talked about, um, some of the, the, the big things that we know in our everyday lives are 13, um, things like not opening umbrellas inside, uh, not walking under ladders, black cats crossing your path, spilling salt, all of these things have become sort of like more or less things that we joke about. People knock on wood. That, that was one thing that we touched on a little bit. That's because even in ancient times, people believed that positive spirits lived inside of trees. So you'd kind of like knock up on their homes and say, help me out here. I need you. So all of these things have become really pervasive, but I don't know how serious people take them now. But not even that long ago, they were still pretty prevalent and actually kept people from... I think living fully enjoyable lives. And there was one man who was a Civil War era vet. Um, he actually fought in 13 battles. And his name was Captain William Fowler. 
just a few things about him. He fought in 13 battles in, in the Civil War. In his time, he was a builder. I don't know if that meant he funded them or he was an architect. It was hard to see tell from what I was reading. But he built 13 structures. When he was a kid, he attended public school 13, where he lived. Um, he joined 13 clubs. So there were a few things in his life that, I guess, drew him to the number and also made him think, oh, it's interesting that I'm surrounded by this unlucky number all the time, and yet I here I am, still alive, a war vet. Um, Which being, side did he fight for? I'm actually not sure. I, thi- I believe the Union, because okay. I, th- I think it was in New York that he did most of his building. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm almost positive about that, but I can, I can double-check afterwards. So he gets it in his mind that the world is not nearly rational enough. And he was one of those people that he just made it his, his sort of duty to civilize people further and get them thinking differently. He, des- he devised this club, and he called it the 13 Club. And he invited 12 other men to join so that there would be 13 inaugural members. What the whole idea was, was to get together on... And the first time they did this was Friday the 13th um, in 1882, which is interesting because that's a full 30 years before the book that came out that connected Friday and the 13th. So he's almost a precursor to that, but unintentionally. For him, it was just Friday's unlucky because of the death of Christ. 13 is unlucky for all the various reasons. So we're going to combine both. So they met on Friday the 13th at 813 in 1882. At in room 13 of Knickerbocker Cottage. <laughs> That's the most old-timey sounding thing I've ever it's heard. It's the most old-timey sounding thing, and it's also just goes into his obsession because there are 13 letters in Knickerbocker, and oh, that's shit. exactly why he called it that. So he owned the building and built it himself. He brought and it's a his- cottage. <laughs> and it's a cottage. I think it was more of like a mansion. It was in, I, I don't really, I'm, so I'm having trouble picturing a cottage in like New York City. So it was a mansion cottage. It was a mansion cottage. So inside, uh, you would walk in and there would be a table. And in later meetings, I don't think the first one, but in some meetings, that table would be shaped intentionally like a coffin with either him or whoever else was leading the meeting at the head and then everyone else sort of around it. There was a banner overhead that read uh, Moratori Te Salitamus, which means those of us who are about to die salute you, Hmm. uh, which was, of course, adapted in the classic ACDC song for those about (laughs) to rock. I was just thinking that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The seal, which is really cool, uh, features a scythe and has that motto on it and an hourglass with wings, sort of the Tempest Fugit idea of time flies, we're all headed towards death. So one would think that they were, in a sense, a death cult, um, sort of from a faraway glance, which is actually what a lot of the waiters at their dinner parties thought. And often the waiters would try to, like, sabotage their plans to try to make them not surrounded by unluck and death. But really, it was more of a rationalist movement, where the idea was, let's get together and do all of the things you're not supposed to do. So 13 is everywhere. They would open up umbrellas inside. When you entered the, the room, you had to walk directly underneath a ladder just to get inside. And they'd go down and they'd eat meals. The one thing that I thought was interesting was they would eat a lobster salad, which is like... I the don't most know. unlucky of dishes. <laughs> which is like, it's, it's just one of those things. It's like, they're just eating lobster because they're rich white guys. Like, there's <laughs> yeah. really no reason like, why well, that would be unlucky. We shouldn't 
you know, not have a good time. Right. They're like, you we know what else eat- is unlucky? Filet mignon. Brandy. <laughs> it's like we could eat a gamey black cat, but nobody wants to do that. So let's eat some lobster. So stringy. But they would eat it in like coffin, in a coffin shape. So someone would actually like form the lobster salad into like the shape of a coffin. And they do all this stuff. It's <laughs> ridiculous. It is, <laughs> basically, the idea was they'd have the dinner, and then like a year later, he would buy, you know, he put out an annual report and, you know, buy space newspapers and stuff to basically tell the whole world, hey, by the way, everybody who was at that meeting is still alive and doing great. And this became an annual thing, or at least at first, whenever there was a Friday the 13th. And this club grew significantly. Within two years of being founded, there were 338 members, which I was kind of disappointed by until I read further that that is twice 13 times 13. Jesus. <laughs> so even the amount of people that they let in at any given time, they have to be able to numerically tie it back. And within the lifespan of this club, they had five U.S. presidents who were honorary members. Uh, those were Chester A. Arthur, Grover Cleveland, Benjamin Harris, uh, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, and T.R. himself, Teddy Roosevelt. Whoa! Oh shit! Awesome. <laughs> which is so, which I think is so such a T.R. thing to yeah, do for is. him to just dare That's death very even further. Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> but I just He's already hunted Earth's most deadly game. He has to kill <laughs> <Yeah. death> next. <laughs> but I just love everything about it because it was basically just a group of wealthy smartasses who just wanted to dare death at all turns to come and f- try and fuck with them. Yeah. And they've been challenged here and there by people saying, well, you know, your member just died this year. And then they were always kind of able to take the rational side of like, yeah, but they didn't die on anything having to do with the 13th. And again, we're all mortal and we know that we're going to die. It's just, and an once you get that many people, just statistically, something's <clears throat> bound to happen. Right. To which them. was kind of what they said. I look at this as pretty ballsy, the 13 club. And the reason I kind of have to laugh at all this is all three of us are pretty rational, rational people. Um, we all believe in science, research, and history. However, we're not going to stop exercising our superstitions. Uh, you're going to keep raising your feet when you hear <laughs> a, a train passing. Ed's going to keep flipping his coin and... I'm going to keep avoiding odd numbers in Radiohead. <laughs> and just Tom York in general. You know, and I, I think that's why it's so uh, insane, because we know that these things uh, objectively are harmless, yet there seems to be something inside of everyone that compels them to keep doing these things. Yeah. And, and you talk about it being harmless, and the irony is that in our pursuit to avoid these things, we will often do harm. So there are examples of sort of financial problems with, are around 13. On Friday the 13th, businesses lose a lot of money because people don't want to spend money. They don't want to plan their wedding. They don't want to go to work sometimes. So it has these things have real-world effects um, we talked about black cats. Black cats, uh, very in, in reality, unfortunately, in places all over the world, are often the last to be adopted and often the first to be euthanized because of the stigma around them. So it's a perfect example of the power of human beings and the power of the human mind to take something that really has no negative effect 
and to, in the pursuit of avoiding it, kind of create the bedlam that that we're trying to avoid. Oh yeah, you're no. absolutely right. Yeah, it's my my girlfriend has a degree in hospitality and hotel management, and she was explaining to me like why buildings, especially hotels, won't have thirteenth floors. You know, it'll go from twelve to fourteen because people don't want to stay on the thirteenth floor, and people don't want to work on the thirteenth floor either. Right. Oh yeah. No, I, I fully believe that superstition will outlive religion. I, well, I think, it, I think it's really just realizing that it's two sides of the same coin <clears throat> where we're always going to have this thing. And even if we lived in a society where we completely uh, expunged religion from our psyche, these things will absolutely... I don't, I don't think, at least in our biological makeup right now, we're capable of not falling prey to these fleets of or these flights of fancy in our I minds. mean it's also kind of fun too you know <clears throat> that's and that's kind of the big thing too at the end of the day much like a lot of the things that we've talked about werewolves uh you know the hollow earth theory if it's interesting we're gonna we're gonna keep pursuing it yeah and, I mean if you're at a table and you s- spill some salt it's like oh I spilled salt I guess I gotta throw some salt over my shoulder you're doing this ridiculous thing you wouldn't have a chance to otherwise and it's rationalized for you right. and it's just it's just kind of silly everybody has like a little giggle about it but alright yeah so with all of that said I mean there's so much around this kind of stuff so please reach out to us about some things that you maybe know about these big stuff, but really, more interestingly to us, we want to know about the weird, quirky, local or familial things that you have that you just have to do or can't do because of superstition. Yeah, we shared ours. We want to hear yours now. <laughs> and let us know what you think about Radiohead and what they're trying to do to and the I'm earth. A creep. <laughs> Quick, I'm Dave, a sign off. <laughs> the hell am I doing here? So thank you, uh, thank you guys both. This is a blast, and thank you, listeners. Um, please reach out to us at, on Twitter. We promise we will respond. We're trying to get better at that. <laughs> we're um, figuring it out. We're at AOE underscore podcast on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Just look up The Age of Enfrightenment. Simple enough. Our website is aoepod.com. That's where you can listen to the episodes in our episodes section. You can look into our resources section for some further reading. Or you can get us on iTunes, which is probably your best bet. Because if you subscribe, we'll be in your feed every two weeks, ready to go and ready to listen to. And uh, thanks a lot for listening to this one. It was a lot of fun. Bye, everyone. Bye! (laughs) (laughs) There it is. All right, thanks, everybody. (laughs) 